Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of American Billiard Radio. My name is Mr. Bond. I'll be your host for this evening. It's February 20th, 2014, and we've got a great little show lined up for you. We're going to be talking to one of Chicago's legendary players, the hustler himself, Freddie the Beard, from the south side of Chicago. You know, I think that's where bad, bad Leroy Brown is from, now that I think about it. Hmm. Freddie's got a new book out, The Encyclopedia of Pool Hustlers. So he's going to be doing a book signing slash meet and greet out in New York at the beginning of April. So we decided to talk to him a little bit about what's going on with that. How's it going, Fred? I'm going to be in New York at the uh, Ace Hotel from the 8th of April to the uh, 12th on a Friday. Okay. And, uh, and then that Friday we're going to have a little sort of a party and uh, we're going to go into one of the pool rooms. I'm not sure which one we're going to go to. We're going to do a little exhibition and then talk and exchange conversation and book signing. I mean, we're going to go to uh, Society Billiards, uh, Amsterdam, or Steinway. I'm not sure which. Okay. I haven't made up my mind yet. One of those three. <laughs> I'm leaning to Steinway because I heard that's where all the action is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I got a lot of people slated to show up. My daughter's promoting the whole darn thing for me. You know, uh, uh, this is, I'm getting kind of old to be doing this stuff, but <laughs> she's pushing me and pushing me, and uh, she knows a lot of people. And it uh, turns out there's going to be uh, plenty of people there. Plenty of people, plenty of media, celebrities uh, that she knows to her school and her school pals that she wants to graduate from Tulane and Princess uh, Parker High School in Chicago, which is uh, the people out of that school just about run the God's own country. <laughs> yeah, that's unbelievable. Uh, <laughs> Really, and they—they're all in the media all over the all over the country, and so she knows them, and they're all good friends. They stay—they stay in contact with each other and support each other. So they're going to push for me and for her, you know, for for me through her. So it should be a pretty good uh, outing. You know, we got some people from uh, History Channel, ESPN, uh, uh, Amazon. Uh, wow. The New York Grind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A bunch of little, a bunch of different uh, media people, um, internet shows, and so anyway, I think it's going to be okay. I got a lot of ham in me, so I can, uh, you know, <laughs> I can take it for a couple hours. You know, be no problem. All right, so this is for your uh, Encyclopedia of Pool Hustlers. You want to tell us a little bit? Can you give us a little sneak preview of what that's all about? Well, the the word encyclopedia is in quotation marks. The quotation mark Encyclopedia of Pool Hustlers because it's not it's not really a formal encyclopedia, you know. Right. It's, uh, it's just my take on it. It's my take on about a hundred players, pool hustlers. Uh, from the second half of the 20th century, from about 1950 to the year 2000. Mm-hmm. I don't have any of the new guys in there. Just the guys that I uh, interacted with, that I played, and that I knew and I hung with and gotcha. gambled with and beat and got broke by, you know. <laughs> and, uh, no, well, a lot I... of them are pretty obscure, but 
Uh, I've got, you know, plow pictures. It's about 329 pages, but about 300 photos, a lot of rare photos. A lot of guys didn't like their picture taken. Oh, Yeah. Just yeah. like Kil- Kilroy Kosmowski, this is probably the only picture of him that's available on Earth. Wow. Because Kilroy wouldn't let his picture be taken. Even if he go to a wedding, he wouldn't let him take his picture. That's how <laughs> paranoid Kilroy was. He was an old school hustler. Are you in the book? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I did my uh, I did my time. I put in my time. <laughs> I I played and hustled all all around the country. Uh, I played every human. Uh, I got a very uh, very large beat list of champions and great players that I beat at least once. <laughs> playing for uh, money or sometimes in a tournament, uh, in a session, complete session, not one game. Right, right. Of course, uh, that should be an asterisk because it doesn't include how many times they beat me. I just <laughs> all I'm speaking of is the time that I beat them. Oh, that's for funny. example, like uh, I beat uh, I got Vernon Elliott in my beat list. I beat Vernon. Well, I beat him once. Finally beat him. He beat me about ninety times. You know, <laughs> he was a he was a he was a great great bankroll player, and I'd always try him. Whenever I got a little bankroll, I'd see him. You know, I I try him. I would give him a try, and he'd uh, he usually beat me. I finally got him in Hot Springs, and I said, "That's okay. That's it. I'm giving him up now." <laughs> I came three games ahead. You're going in the book, and that's it, my friend. No, that's funny stuff, man. What is uh... Technically speaking, what is your definition of a hustler? Well, it's a guy that takes chances, goes around, plays in strange places. Mm-hmm. Uh, he may <clears throat> he may play weak action. You know, he, he may play uh, he may play people that he can beat for sure, and he might have to disguise himself uh, and, and make believe he plays a lot worse than he actually does. Yeah, there you go. But that's not that's just part of the thing. You know, you you're gonna have to play you in that time you would you'd have to end up eventually playing some tough action, okay, if you wanted to eat. Because the knife and fork yeah. you know, on the road, the nut on the road would get you. You had to finally you know, you have to play. If you run out of easy action, then you're gonna have to start playing some of those sharks. You couldn't sit and wait for something to keel over and fall dead in front of you and you can go through his pockets. That's what these guys are looking to do today. Waiting for somebody to pass out. we have to get up and boogie was there a particular uh guy that you were um i don't want to say a favorite but was there somebody that you enjoyed playing more than the others or something somebody that was more memorable for some reason well the most the most memorable guy of all let's face it but minnesota fats okay i mean he was a unique unique character there's just never been anybody like him before or since yeah he was i mean the, the, the personality of this guy was incredible. I mean, he would, wherever he was at, he could empty out a room to follow him. People would follow him all over. He'd come into a place, and wherever he was at, everybody else was around him. He drew crowds. It was just amazing. And he it was just, uh, he told a lot of lies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot of exaggerations. But actually, he some of it was, some of it was true. Yeah. To me, he was a great player. I thought he was a hell of a player. I've seen him play. I've seen him play for uh, big money. You know, he's playing for 300 500 a game in the 60s. That's a lot of money back then, you know? Yeah, He's playing was. the best players in the world, Ronnie Allen and 
Tuscaloosa Squirrel and Cornbread Red and Danny, Danny Jones and Weenie Beanie. Those were tough, tough players back then. And, uh, did you take them for any money? Did I? No, I never played fast. I, I, I was, uh, I was a fast groupie. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was a young kid then. And, uh, I didn't play that well either at the time. I didn't start playing pretty good until I was like 30. I really developed very late, you know? Wow. But I just like to hang around Fats and uh, listen to his banter. You know, the guy, he could really talk, you know? Yeah. And he was funny, way. funny, extremely funny. And, <laughs> you know, he had the sar sarcastic little things he would say. And, uh, nobody dared try to buck him, uh, with conversation. They didn't, you, you never want to try to, you know, to, to get the best of Fats in conversation. <laughs> There's no chance. You know, I watched some of the, um, some of the video on him and it's almost like, he is, uh, I mean, a stand-up comedian almost. Exactly. All the lines he had was great. I mean, one-liners, perfect timing. <laughs> yeah, he was on the Tonight Show, uh, uh, Mike Douglas Show, a bunch of different uh, interview TV. Inter and when he'd be on, they'd cancel the other guests. <laughs> okay? He was on, I'm sure, was, I'm almost 90% sure it was the Tonight Show. It used to, and it used to run for two hours. Back in the sixties, mm -hmm. maybe even two and a half hours, I think, from ten, two and a half hours, two hours for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, they had Fats came out as the first guest. They canceled all the other guests. <laughs> okay, kept Fats on the whole time. <laughs> they had him on with uh, Muhammad Ali. Okay, I know Muhammad Ali. Wow, He's got a pretty good size ego, right? Yeah, he does. He, he got into it with Fats. They started, got into a bragging contest. Oh, that's And uh, finally, well, he threw his hands up in the air, and he said, Fats, you are the greatest. Because <laughs> <laughs> all he used to always cry, I'm the greatest, I'm the greatest. But uh, yeah. he conceded for Fats. He couldn't fade Fats' act. <laughs> Oh, that's that's that that is really funny, actually. Is it? Uh, is do you have? Well, have you had a favorite game the whole time, or do you did you switch up to different different things over you know over well, the my, years? My best game was my best game has been bank pool. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, I, I can always play pretty good bank pool. And uh, the first game I learned, I didn't learn straight in pool. I learned first game I played was bank pool. That's a good idea. And, well, that's the, the way. That's what they played in my old neighborhood here in Bridgeport, in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So I always played pretty good bank, and I am in the uh, in 2006. I, I was inducted into the Bank Pool Hall of Fame. Into the so. Hall of Fame, yeah. Uh, uh, well, that was a great honor. Did you ever end but up? I, Sorry, go ahead. No, then I ended up. Uh, I had to switch over to one pocket because there's more action in one pocket. Yeah, that's pretty hard what, to get a bank game. Much yeah. easier to get a one one pocket game. That's what I was just about to ask. Did you end up having to play something else just because that's the only action oh, you could sure. get? Yeah, well, sure, sure. And uh, but I wasn't a very good player. Anyway, <laughs> but this uh, old time great player Gene Skinner from Fullerton, California, he took pity on me. He watched me play once uh, down at Ben Sears in Chicago. And he, I was getting my, I got my brains knocked in, and he, he said, "Come here, kid." He said, "Listen," he said. Come by tomorrow afternoon. I'll meet you here, 
and I'm going to show you how to play one pocket. He says, you've got no chance what you're doing now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in those days, guys did not teach you anything. You couldn't learn anything. You ask a good player for an advice, he'd laugh at you. Yeah. The secrets were all they kept them to themselves. You know, they never tell you anything. Right, right. And, he, and uh, so he took pity on me, and uh, he worked with me for about uh, a week straight in the pool room, showed me what to do, and he, he taught me the concept of how to play one pocket, okay? Because a guy can show you shots. I learned, I, had, I took lessons from the great player Joe Persida, too. I learned nothing. Because <laughs> Joe would show you a shot. Here's this shot, here's that shot. Now, you might go two years and not see the shots that he, right. that he taught me, okay? Yeah. But Gene Skinner taught me how to think in every situation, how to, how to adapt to each uh, position, each situation that comes up, you know, and how to, yeah. how to handle it, mm. how to develop the concept of one pocket. And bing, man, a, a light went on in my head, and I improved like two walls <laughs> in one week. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I went down to uh, I went down to Johnson City in 1970. I was 30 years old, and I played my first tournament ever. I never played the tournament, and I played in the Johnson City One Pocket Tournament. That was the first time you had ever played in a tournament. <laughs> first time ever at 30 years old. Wow! And uh, my first opponent was Cicero Murphy. Really? Between the world's champion, a great black player from Brooklyn, New York. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, the uh, the line they you know they had a betting line down there. There was a lot of action in Johnson City, mm-hmm. and the betting line was five to one against me. <laughs> <laughs> I, was five, I was a five to one underdog, which was the right line. Okay, it was the right line. I'm a total you know beginner. Yeah, yeah. But uh, something happened. I got into they had these the pit where you play. It was a pit surrounded by bleacher seats, and the lights were phenomenal. I had phenomenal lighting system. Had these big floodlights over the table, so the lights, the best lighting system I've ever played under. As soon as I got underneath those lights, something happened. You know, something came over me, and uh, I don't know what it was exactly, except that I know, I knew that I was going to play good. Okay, <laughs> my head, my mind was clear. I was relaxed, and uh, anyway, I, I broke the balls. I won the the. Uh, I won the lag, and I broke the balls, and I sold out a shot. And Cicero, I was still a little nervous at that point. And Cicero shot, he ran about five, and he missed, you know, uncharacteristically. He missed. And uh, I ran eight and out. <laughs> now they were playing winter breaks then. So the next game, I broke. I made a real good break, real strong break. Cicero tried to play safe. He couldn't do it. I ran another eight and out. The next game, yeah, the next game I broke. Not pretty strong, but he played a decent safety. Anyway, I found, I banked the ball at the stack. One went in, eight and out again. That's three eight and outs in a row. Mm. He's only been to the table three times now. The fourth game, I broke the balls again. And this time, I made one on the break, and I run eight and out again. Four eight and outs in about ten minutes, maybe less than that. And Cicero's been to the table three times. Anyway. Uh, Bet you he was not was very happy the, about that. It's my first, that's my first tournament match. Okay, my <laughs> tournament match. And there was, some, there was a bus driver that hung around Bensinger's, uh, a little friend of mine named Milton. 
he was the only guy double up the bet on me and take the five to one. <laughs> yeah. he, you know, I didn't bet. You know what I mean? Myself, I didn't even bet. But he bet. He took five to one. Wow. So, like I said, with that knowledge I gained from Skinner, uh, I did. I came in fifth in the tournament, which was my first tournament. Yeah, that's not bad. And I had a, I I, I got a little goofy. I had a chance. I was playing Ronnie Allen for third third place. Ronnie Allen was the best best player in the world, and uh, we're playing for third place in the tournament. If I had to beat him, I had to play Boston Shorty for the championship. <laughs> playing race to four, four to seven. I got Ronnie three games to two, and I just run seven balls. Okay, I need one ball to knock Ronnie out. I didn't have a shot. Mm. Now, all I had to do was just shoot, play a little safety, and shoot a couple, shoot the ball away from Ronnie's side, that the danger ball, yeah. and you know, manage the balls and put the ball, take some balls out of play. And I would have been a gigantic favorite to win the game. But the hand bone in me came out, and I wanted to run eight and out. I ran seven. I wanted to run eight and out. And I, I seen, I looked, I seen a three ball combination. And, you know, you start feeling good. You figure, you know, you're invincible. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to run. I want to beat him by running eight and out, which big deal. Eight and out, what's the difference? How you beat him as long as you win? Yeah. I went for the three-ball combination. I missed it. And uh, Ronnie ran five off of that. Moved, maneuvered around, maneuvered around, ended up winning the game. And then they played winter breaks then. So it was his break. He made a real good break. And he got three balls off the break, and he just played defense from there, and he just ground me out, and he ended up winning it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like so I said, came in fifth. Phenomenal. And that just from that, that training I got from Gene Skinner. Yeah, yeah. Just kind of player he was. That had to have been a really intimidating situation uh, to be uh, in the, against all those, I don't want to say pros, but all those badasses and you. <laughs> You know, the beginning. Well, you know, here, here's something. Here, here's something here, Dave. I was down there. I went to Johnson City every year except the first. Mm-hmm. 61 was the first year they had it. Uh, I was there from 62 to 72 every year. It lasted three weeks. I usually stayed a whole three weeks. And I'd watch these guys play. And what struck me is, uh, you know, I was... Like anybody else, I said, well, what if I play one of these guys for big money? I'm going to shake. I'm going to tremble. But I watched them playing each other, and I noticed something. I'm watching, like, uh, handsome Danny Jones was playing uh, Lassiter, Wimpy Lassiter. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at him. His hand was, his grip hand was shaking like a leaf. <laughs> <laughs> he was trembling all over the place. and shaking, bro. You could see it. But meanwhile, he was playing real good anyway. <laughs> mm. it, didn't, it didn't affect his game too much. I looked around. I'm watching these other guys. When they played each other, they shook just like anybody else. Their nerves were, you know, a jangle. Yeah, yeah. So I said, but they, but what, I, the, what I learned there is just because they were nervous didn't mean that they couldn't play, that they couldn't handle it. That they could, you know what I mean? They couldn't handle the nerves. And they played right through all of that. Right, right. So I said, so it's okay to be a human being and to be nervous. It's okay. Might even help in some spots. Yeah. To have that kind of uh, uh, excitement going on in you. You'll still be able to play. So 
I, I, you know, when I played these guys, I wasn't as, as, as nervous as maybe uh, somebody else might have been, you know, or, or you know, other kind of some other kind of a novice, you know, mm-hmm. that didn't have that background. Line up your shot, shift into gear. You'll burn your fingers if you stand too near. Rack 'em up again, 'cause I'm something to be feared. How did you uh, get interested in pool in the first place? I mean, uh, was it just something that your family did and you just picked it up, or was there something that that sort of set you off? Well, I I come out of a Bridgeport neighborhood in Chicago. It's Mayor Daly's old neighborhood. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an old Italian neighborhood. And it's uh, it's a tough neighborhood, okay? Yeah. Pretty rough neighborhood. Really rough. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was a skinny kid. Skinny, you know, and <laughs> I didn't mature. I didn't grow until I was like 21 years old. <laughs> so I was skinny, and uh, everybody was my age. Kids my age were all bigger than me and stronger, you know. And, and, and so in, in the athletics, I wasn't too good, you know, in football, baseball. Right. So I tried to play bowling, you know, because everybody was, you could be kind of skinny and bowl. <laughs> so we used to go to the bowling alley when I was like 14. And uh, it was very popular. And the lanes were usually tied up. You'd have to sign your name and wait for a lane. They'd call you, you know, yeah. they'd put you on a waiting list. So one day we're in there, we're waiting for the lanes, myself and my friends, waiting for a lane to open up. And uh, a guy says, one of the kids says, well, listen, they got a pool room next door. Why don't we go next door, shoot a few games of pool while we're waiting for a bowling lane to open up? <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. He wants to just sit there and wait. So we went into the pool room next door. Had about four tables. Napanella's bowling alley and pool room. Well, you know, the end of the story, when they called our name for the bowling alley, we told them, Keep it, brother. <laughs> we like it where we're at. <laughs> and, I, and I never went back to a bowling alley again, okay? I never bowled another game. The rest of that was, that was let's see, uh, 58 years ago. <laughs> wow. So you enjoyed it that much then? Well, it just it just captured me. I, yeah. Because even with a bowling ball, the bowling ball was like 16 pounds. Even that was kind of, you needed a... <laughs> to be kind of a strong guy to, you know, to bowl too. But yeah. pool, you know, I, I felt I had a, a penchant for it right away. Do you remember what right kind now. of, what game you guys were playing at that point? Well, that that game, we didn't play banks then. We played uh, rotation. That was the first game we played. It's the only game we knew, we knew how to play, rotation. Sure, sure. You know, ball rotation. Now, do you... Um... Looking back, what do you suppose the largest amount of money was that you ever were able to take out of, of a match? Well, I played Archie Karras, the highest rolling gambler of all time, the guy from Vegas. Uh, Archie, <laughs> uh, we, we played for $100,000 a game. <laughs> per game? Yeah, per game, yeah. One pocket. What? Well, 
we started playing the first, we started playing eight ball. And uh, the first game of eight ball we played was for 40,000 a game. Now, if you knew Archie, you can understand that this guy, uh, that's nothing to this man. Hmm. The guy, the guy had just, he just come from a run at the horseshoe in Vegas where he had won, he was about anywhere between 30 to $50 million winner gambling. Wow. Uh, at the crap tables, and he'd beat every poker champion around there. You know, Doyle Brunson and all those guys, uh, Chip Reese. You know, he annihilated them people, playing them heads up, no limit poker, because nobody could bet like this guy. You know, this guy, if he had a bankroll, I mean, he just put bet $2 million on a 2-7, you know? <laughs> and they couldn't fade it. Nobody could fade it. Yeah. So he had, he had all the $5,000 chips that they had at the horseshoe in his cage. So they estimated between 30 and $50 million. And I lost a lot of it back eventually, naturally. He didn't quit. He wants to win the whole state of Nevada. <laughs> so he had about four or five million left. And uh, so they talked these guys there, these hustlers there talked him into uh, going to Pennsylvania to play this uh, eccentric millionaire. Was an industrialist that bet real high. Now, Archie had heard about this guy, you know, for years. Heard about, he didn't know who he was, didn't know what he looked like. But he heard that the guy was a real degenerate gambler. So now he's, he, he didn't want to play him when he had the 40, 30, 40 million. He didn't want to play anybody, you know. <laughs> but now that he's, he's, the money's sort of uh, evaporating on him, he figures maybe he can go there and maybe win four or five million, you know, steal four or five million from this guy. So he, he went to Pennsylvania. But meanwhile, Stash in Pennsylvania is me <laughs> in this little town. I'm going to play the part of this the billionaire. Like I say, he doesn't know who I am. <laughs> so we so we had we had the the waitresses and the bartenders clued in on it. You know, they they called me by the guy's name and. Um, <laughs> Thank you, sir, and you know all that bullshit, you know. <laughs> so Archie, he fell. What's he gonna? Why not? You know, it's a little the town had a town of about five thousand people. Okay, who'd ever suspect there was something going on? Like, plus there is a real person. Archie knew there was a real guy there in this town. Only I wasn't him. <laughs> so That's we went funny. to the pool room. There's a little bowling alley there. Nobody in the place. Well, we'll play some play a game of eight ball. So I said, "Okay, what do you want to play for, Archie?" Ah, play some forty thousand a game. That was just opening line. Did you even now have? You had, did you even have that much cash to back no, it up? No, no, no. Okay. Of course not. Okay, yeah. Of course. I, but I, I got the story. I'm the billionaire. Oh, I don't yeah, have yeah. You. Exactly. My word is good. I got checks, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but he brought cool. with him. He brought with him about two hundred thousand uh, worth of chips from the horseshoe. Mm. He didn't have any cash. He had chips. <laughs> Matter of fact, he had four twenty-five thousand dollar chips. See, he, like I told you, he'd won all the, the five thousand dollar chips. Yeah. So what they had to do is they had to invent a new chip for Archie, a twenty-five thousand dollar chip. <laughs> That was for him only, okay? <laughs> Just for him. They're only good for him. That's funny. So 
Yeah. So he had four twenty-five thousand dollars chips, and the rest another twenty-five thousand dollars chips. So I'll never forget. We we played the first game. He broke, didn't make anything. Balls are all hanging in the pocket. I was a little nervous. I said, "Let me just get off winner anyway." I just I couldn't help it. I run out. I run the whole game out for the forty thousand. I didn't have to show any speed doing it. Boom, he has me eight $5,000 chips. Next game, I break. I don't make nothing. This time, he runs out. Okay? <laughs> now, I got to be his, his 40000 back. Now, I'm a little nervous now. Because yeah. he's not supposed to be a very good player. You know. But uh, we seesawed back and forth, and then we finally... Kicked it up pretty good, and uh, anyway, I ended up winning like a hundred thousand dollars the first night. <clears throat> mm-hmm. You know, stalling around. We got, you know, and he ended up. Uh, he gave me four twenty-five thousand dollars chips, which are actually worthless unless he okay's them. They're worthless. You know, if I try to cash them at the horseshoe, they're, they're going to laugh at me. Yeah. He's got to call the horseshoe and tell him to, to give me the money. You know. Damn. So. But anyway, we had to, we couldn't play anymore until we had those chips cashed. <laughs> so I had to invent some reason. I said, well, listen, I have to fly to Japan. <laughs> I got this big, big board of directors meeting over there with uh, some <laughs> Toyota or somebody. I forgot what was that. <laughs> you know, they, they get me out of the picture right, until right. the kid that we sent back to, um, which was Larry Schwartz, <laughs> Everybody knows that Larry Schwartz got set, flew back to Vegas to catch the chips. Archie had already okayed him, but we didn't have the money, so he flew back, catched the chips, and then came back to uh, Pennsylvania. Man, man, that's and then so uh, now we can play again. You know. <laughs> oh, you got some nuts! I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> well, it was yeah, it was pretty scary. I'll tell you. You know, it's, it's a lot of pressure. You know. Well, I mean, pressure. what would you have done if you had lost? I mean, I mean, had it been a hundred thousand dollar bet and you, and you lost, what do you do then? Oh, I was going to give him a story. Sorry, <laughs> you know, I'll give you want a check. And they, well, you know, you know, he doesn't want a check. We give him a hundred thousand dollar check. <laughs> we like, you know, I'll, I'll turn the, you know, I'll, I'll uh, <laughs> cash in some bonds or do some. I'll, I'll get you the money in a few days and uh. Oh man, that's good stuff. Yeah, if we played one game, he could win, like he did. But we didn't. You know, we're going to play. Uh, you know, yeah. play through the night. Sure, sure. The climax of all this was after the first session is over. I got the hundred thousand. Now we got to go pay the time at this little bowling alley. <laughs> There's nobody there. You know, the, the guy, the guy that was running the counter, he had no idea what we were doing. Yeah. The time was twenty one dollars. So I guy said, twenty one dollars, sir. So I started not I'm really gonna digging into this guy pretty good. I started patting myself, like as if I can't find twenty one dollars. <laughs> <laughs> I'm patting, you know what I mean? I'm patting my pockets. Oops, oops, I'm short arming them. That's what they call a hustler. The alligator arm, short arm. You can't reach your pockets. Mm-hmm. I'm patting my pockets. I can't find twenty one dollars. I got a hundred thousand dollars in my pocket. He just gave it to me. I can't find twenty one dollars to pay the time. In other words, like I'm a real cheap guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's a really big. 
Anyway, he says, oh, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He says, oh, I'll, I'll get the time. So he pulled out the 21 dollars and he paid the time. I said, oh, thank you, Archie. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for the $100,021. So now he was really hooked because he figured out was a real creep. You know? <laughs> oh, that's good, man. Classic stuff, that's for sure. Well, Freddie, I got to get out of here. So uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, if you guys are uh, listeners out there are going to be in New York, uh, tell us the dates again there, Fred. April 8th to the 12th. April 8th to the 12th. At the Ace Hotel. Ace Hotel in the lobby, uh, the bar, and probably at Steinway's Billiards. Probably Steinway or Society. I'll, I'll, I'll let everybody know before I go. Yeah, you guys, I'm sure, will we'll make another announcement before that time comes up. All right, well, take care of yourself, buddy, and uh, we will talk to you again very soon. Thanks, David. I enjoyed it. Scott Lee, PBIA Master Instructor from Largo, Florida. And I'm Randy Gettlicker, PBIA Master Instructor from Dallas, Texas. And welcome to the One Minute Pool Instructor. Our topic today is we're going to talk about the three pre-shot routines. Three? Yeah, we only have three, Randy? Well, and one of the myths of pool, or, or the things that I hear in the pool halls all the time, is people ask me about, what is my pre-shot routine? And I, I stutter a little bit because in all sports, uh, uh, stick ballistic sports, there are three pre-shot routines, not just one, but three, and they're very interchangeable. And, so what's and, that? And what's we, that? we call those routines think, see, and do. Think, see, and do. But no matter what words we use for them, we have to do what? We have to definitely uh, put them together so that they create a a smooth a transition from deciding what we're going to do to the end result of pocketing the ball in the hole and setting up for the next shot. All right, so how much time have we got to think? Well, you know, typically uh, we have about 30 seconds to decide what, where we're going to go when we approach the table. How is that determined? Well, it's, it's basically uh, you, you have to decide, depending on what game you're playing, you have to decide what route do I want to take? Am I going offensive, defensive? Uh, am I going to immediately try and run the rack? Am I going to play safe? Uh, there's, a, there's so many variables involved depending on the game. So 30 seconds is a, is a good time frame to think about it. And that may be too short for some people and way too long for others. Yeah, for me it's a, an eternity. but. I'm a very creative uh, person. So after we think about it, then what does that see it mean, Scott? Well, that's the visualization stage. Any high-level athlete in any sport, the last thing they do before they execute is to visualize themselves performing perfectly. And so that's the, that's the last thing that we want to do before we execute is to see ourselves down in the shot, lined up correctly, deliver the cue accurately, and get the end result that we're looking for. Is that kind of like a motion picture or is that stop action? Well, it might depend on the person, okay. but I, I'd, I'd like to think of it as uh, uh, perfect pictures. I always want to see uh, a perfect video of 
myself shooting the ball in the hole and getting perfect position for my next shot. Alright, so we have think, we have see, and then what's the do part of our routine? Now there's a third part routine. There is. I believe we've talked about it once before. We have, and it, and it is the most uh, common thing that most pool players refer to as their personal pre-shot routine. They only think about the do part. What happens when their hand hits the cloth and they line up and shoot the ball in the hole. So we call that what? The mantra? Mm-hmm. So what are the three pre-shot routines? We have to... We have to think? That's about 30 seconds. What's the visualization take? The C is just a two, or, two or three seconds. Very short. Alright, and then the execution part? And then the do part, the execution part is about 10 to 12 seconds. And why is it that we only have about 10 seconds, Randy? Well, anytime we run over 10, 12 seconds, the brain is going to start searching for more information. So uh, any habit is really formed in a 10 to 12 second period. So my execution phase, bam, 8 seconds. No interference from the brain. That's uh, certainly a great, uh, a great way to set it up and put it together. And that's uh, a good way to, to finish up our one-minute pool instructor segment for this week. Well, what's next week? Well, join us next week when we're going to talk about uh, your personal shooting template. So what is a standard template? Wow. See you next week. This is Randy G. And I'm Scott Lee for the One Minute Pool Instructor. Welcome to this week's edition of Pool on the Grind here on AmericanBilliardRadio.com. I'm your host, Allison Fisher of NYCGrind.com, and joining me this week is my guest, Mark Finkelstein, who is a New York-based PBIA certified instructor and also a contributor to NYCGrind.com. How are you doing this week, Mark? I'm great. I'm certainly glad to be back in New York. Uh, spent uh, the last five days in Atlanta with a, a great ride in the snow to get there. Um, they had snow on the ground and it's not like New York. They certainly don't know how to handle it. Right. So what all were you doing in Atlanta? We, I was down there with the National Billiard Academy and Tom Simpson uh, and Mark Powell from Baltimore and I got, uh, another uh, instructor player from Georgia named Tommy Jones and we were down there um, running an advanced seminar for two days, Thursday and Friday, and then um, our beginner intensive Saturday, Sunday and Monday. It's very cool. It that's, that's, uh, sounds like you had a very busy few days then. It's, they're, they're pretty intensive. We start uh, the, our days, um, um, the, the uh, players come in at 9.30, we start at 8.30, and we roll until 6, 7 o'clock, and basically we play pool for five days straight. Wow, that's awesome. Now, how long have you been teaching? I've been, well, I started teaching um, in 1992. Um, and I started at Chelsea Billiards because way back in, 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 in the old days they used to have pool school on Monday night. And the big deal about pool school was that if you taught at the pool school you got free table time. Mm. So there was a, l a line of people that wanted to become instructors. Not because they really wanted to be instructors, but because they wanted to get free table time. In my, uh, in my time at the day, you know, you'd run $100, $200 bills a week. Sure. Um, Ruby Alabama was there. She's recently died. Um, a guy named John Delavaux was there. He's recently died, and a bunch and, and a, a bunch of other people. Um, 
And so I finally got selected for it. They picked me, I guess they'd ran out of other people. And um, so I went as a player, I wound up becoming a, an instructor. And then over, over the time, I realized, you know, this is kind of neat. I really like doing this. And as I get older, I play less. Um, and so I've been, you know, so probably for the last 10, 12 years, I've been doing, doing more and more of it. And it's kind of neat to try to show people things that, um, that you can't, you know, I guess you don't know what you don't know. So showing people things that, um, that I learned way back when I was um, a, a young pool player. Um, and in those days, nobody showed you anything. Uh, when, right. I, when I grew up, um, there were play lots of players would um, aim at one place and hit another place because they didn't even want you to know what they were doing. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot from you know, just, just getting beat up on by better players over the years. And eventually you start saying, okay, I see what they did. And, um, you know, I, I guess that, then I'd like to pass that on. Well, I think that uh, it's invaluable to have uh, people who are doing what you do and reaching out, especially to the younger generations of players. So uh, what do you find is sort of the most rewarding thing about teaching in your perspective? I think the most rewarding thing is, is the look on people's faces when they get it. Um, you know, and, and I'll give you an example. One of our students uh, came to our, our thing, our, event, our seminar, just, last, just a couple of days ago. And um, he was like, well, I use English and spin to, on every, just about every shot. And I says, well, why would you do that when you, if you stay in the vertical axis, you can um, get the cue ball just about anywhere you want. So of course he's like, well, show me. And he picks some silly shot and says, can you get it here? And you know, it's really easy, so you do. And then he tries another one and he said, well, let me try it. And so he tried it three or four times. And then the look on his face was priceless when he realized, you know, I really don't need all that spin. And then I won't miss as much. And, mm -hmm. you know, to see that look on his face, is, that's, that's the gratification. The other really gratifying thing is dealing with young people and, and watching them get interested in pool and how much fun it is and uh, having them um, get involved in the game. In fact, we did a, a, an event uh, a month or so ago with uh, Cathedral High School. Yeah. And, I mean, I, I, uh, those kids were all lit up. They were just having the time of their life. And, uh, I mean, I think that's priceless. Uh, to give you some background here, Mark is a regular teacher of a group of high school students from the Cathedral Girls High School, Catholic High School here in New York. And myself and Gail Robles got invited to join them and do a little fun clinic. And by far that was one of the most enjoyable things that I've done in relation to pool and seeing how much enjoyment those kids got out of learning to do things in a better way and kind of seeing that aha yeah, moment that, that, happen. That's really exciting. It's I mean, yeah. really fun. And, and you know, and I, I would encourage everyone out there that's listening, if you have young people in your world, you know, please introduce them to pool. And, and, and you know, the selling point is it's not electronic and it's social and um, it requires hand-eye coordination and it's uh, anybody can play. I mean, old people, young people, men, women, mm -hmm. uh, kids. Uh, it's, it's, it's just a great game. Yeah, it's a very great family activity. I grew up playing with my family, my parents, my stepbrothers, 
so that was a, a way for me to engage with them and of course who doesn't like a little family rivalry that probably still goes on <laughs> to this day which is not bad that's not a bad thing absolutely mm -hmm. now you mentioned Chelsea before and anyone who knows uh, much about New York pool knows that New that Chelsea is a legendary infamous uh, establishment in New York Do you want to talk a little bit about what it was like to be uh, playing out of Chelsea at that well, time? Well, it was a 24-hour room, and I, you know, a couple of fond remembrances up at the table upstairs when you went in the door to the right was always a big money game between the pimps and and the uh, the drug addicts, and that was always that went on forever. Mm -hmm. um, Ginky was there, George Makula was there, uh, Gypsy was there. Uh, I mean, the list is endless of of names that that I remember. Um, watching George McCoola play, just um, it was just amazing. If you, don't, if you don't know, George was one of the, the better one um, uh, straight pool players, um, and actually Ginky played a lot with him uh, when Ginky was coming up. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that there was a better person to play position off one rail than George McCoola. I mean, he did that better than anyone I have ever seen since that day. You know, Johnny Irvalino was around, Abe Rosen was around. Uh, a Spanish Pete. Um, I mean, there was just just a, a cast of characters that um, went on. I mean, it, it was 24 hours uh, and just never stopped. That's awesome. I know I was speaking with someone a few days ago that was telling me that they wish I would have been around to see what it was like when Chelsea was going. And of course, I didn't come here to New York until 2008, so it was uh, before my time. It, it, you know, and the fun part about Chelsea was real pool. I mean, you know, there were people that would really gamble, and, and there were people that would really play. And it was Charlie Tuna, and I don't know, I don't even know the guy's real name, but Charlie Tuna would always, uh, some guy, you know, whoever walked in, he, if he didn't know you, he'd want to play a cheap set. And, I, you know, he always used to wear a Goldberg, the wrestler, um, T-shirt. And I don't know if anybody remembers Charlie Tuna, but he was the short, kind of chubby, bald guy, and he was just kind of a weirdo. Um, Great guy, I love him to death. I haven't seen him in years. Hmm. Uh, Ruby Alabama was there, Mary Hurt, who's recently died, and I remember her doing uh, parties and events, and she had her, a raccoon hat and, a, and, a, and a, a raccoon tail on the end of her pool table. Oh my gosh. And she'd sit there and, and clown, clown it up, and, uh, and she could play. She could play a little, and, and um, it, it was just, just a ton of, ton of good players. Johnny Irvellino, um, just a ton of players went through there. Yeah, awesome. Very cool. Now, and you t you also teach out of Slate Billiards, which is the former location. Right. That, that was of bought. Chelsea. That was bought. Mm -hmm. I think they started converting it 10, 15 years ago. And you know, it's now become an upscale, upscale kind of a club, and it's no longer a real pool room. The tables aren't as nice as they used to be, mm -hmm. but the atmosphere is good and the food is good. So it's just a different. It beca it's become a different thing. I think um, for pool to make it economically, I think becoming a bar restaurant is kind of the trend because. Mm -hmm. Making making a business run in New York City on table time just really isn't going to do it. Yeah, so, absolutely. So the parties, the drinks, the the social stuff really makes more money, and I think we need we need that. Mm-hmm. For sure. And I, and I would I would encourage everybody here, you know, support pool. You know, buy buy the tape, buy the book, buy the cue, um, put money into our sport because otherwise we're not going to have a sport. You know, I mean, and and you know, sometimes oh, I don't want to spend for this, I don't want to pay for that. You know, I mean, it probably doesn't cost all that much, and it, it keeps it coming. Mm -hmm. So we, we, you know, we, I encourage everybody to bring young people in and, and, and spend money for our sport so that it becomes 
it, it stays vital and, and lively. Yeah, I think that really is key for there to be momentum in the industry because if, if that fizzles out, then we won't really have anything to anything to work with. Yeah, exactly. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, if the pool room's closed, where are we going to play? And I've always been a big table player. In fact, when I first started playing on 5x10s was more common than not. Right. Uh, and I'm not sure. And, and now today, the vast majority of people have only seen uh, bar tables. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the things we do here on, with so many players when they come through our seminars is, God, this table is so big. How do you play on it? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, it's, you know, if you can shoot the ball straight, the rest it doesn't matter what size the table. Yeah, and now the ten foot tables are having a little bit of a resurgence. Yeah, absolutely. With uh, Diamond now producing their big foot ten yeah. foot table, which they they have one at uh, Gotham City Billiards. Oh, cool! cool. Which that's that's uh, where the Predator Pro Am Tour is going to be hosted this weekend cool. for the first time. So they got remodeled with all new diamond tables and the diamond Bigfoot tables, so that should be pretty exciting. That sounds like fun, yeah. yeah. Those are fun to play on. If you ha and if you, I'd encourage you, if you haven't played on a 10-foot table, try it. You will, um, it will change your outlook on position. Oh, absolutely. Be because uh, leaving yourself long all of a sudden is like, you need binoculars to see the ball. <laughs> and uh, if you leave yourself so you have to stretch, you need a ladder. Right. You know, so all of a sudden you start thinking about things that you might not think about on a four and a half by nine mm -hmm. that the old timers grew up with. And there is also uh, the Brunswick five by ten at Steinway yep. here yeah, in New York, the, the, the where Earl they had them, yeah. yeah they had the Earl versus Efren mm -hmm. match there. So, uh, do you have any events planned here in New York in terms of? teaching in the in the near future the next seminar we've got going on is in three weeks uh, the 23rd I believe it is in Philadelphia um, in Fat Albert's Al Tonelli has a great room down in um, Philadelphia uh, last time I was down there um, one of the one of the Fuscos came by uh, I think it was Mike Fusco came by and we wow. were um, spending a late night have you seen this shot kind of a conversation uh, which is really yeah. kind of fun because you know this and you, you know <laughs> it just went on and on and on and on sure. so that was really a lot of fun um, and uh, yeah so that's coming up in three weeks and then uh, after that I have to look at the schedule but cool well uh, if people are interested in finding out about where you're offering clinics how can they reach you you can find me in a couple of places one is um, uh, I'm on NYC Grind. You can get me, reach me through that. Mm -hmm. uh, you could also reach me at Slate. The number is 212-989-0096. Or if you're interested in one of the seminars we do, um, it, it's called the National Billiard Academy and under Tom Simpson. And you can find us. Uh, we're online, so just look it up online. Mm -hmm. Also, um, the PBIA, Professional Billiard Instructor Association, has a website. And under the instructor part there, you can find me there if you're looking to get, get a hold of me in, individually. Awesome. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show this week, and maybe we'll have you again sometime in the future. Love looking forward to it. So much fun. Thanks, Allison. Awesome. And keep up the good work. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Mark. And thanks to everyone who has joined us this week. I'm Allison Fisher signing off for Pull on the Grind here on AmericanBilliardRadio.com.
Hello, everybody. Welcome to AZ Billiards on American Billiard Radio. I'm Mike Howerton. I'm joined this week by member of the Minnesota Outlaws, Torsten Homan. Torsten, how are you? Hi, Mike. I'm, I'm excellent. I'm fine. Thank you for having me on the show. Well, thanks for taking time out of your schedule. I know you're a busy man. Um, I do want to, first off, congratulate you on the win uh, last week at the Bonus Ball Finals. Thanks, Mike. That was uh, very special. We definitely want to get into the Bonus Ball win, but first off, you had a really good year last year. Um, World Nine Ball Championship, seemed like you were winning every 14-1 tournament there was, um, and then... I understand there are even some events that we don't have on the on our results page that you you also won the Kremlin Cup in Moscow. Um, what do you what do you think happened last year? I mean, did everything just click, or or have you changed something in your in your game? Or uh, if I had the answer, I would duplicate that, and you know, every year. Um, but I you know I try to find reasons myself. First of all, I think in general my season usually picks up in the second half of the year. The first three to four or five months are always very slow. There are not so many big tournaments to play in, and I don't really go to regional tournaments. So I used last year mainly to focus on myself and my physical fitness. So, because um, in, in the December before, I was the fattest I've ever been in my life. I said, I need to make a change. And uh, I knew that January, February, uh, January, February, March would be very slow. So I spent most of my time uh, home in Jacksonville, uh, exercising. I started a nutrition program there. Um, you know, they provide me with meals. Uh, you know, uh, took my measurements, and I was very focused. And I think I lost about 20 pounds. Um, was practicing, of course. Uh, I played in. What did I play? I think I played Turning Stone, and I finished third. And um, so that was the beginning, and it just, you know, gave me confidence. Uh, I felt great. Uh, you know, that could have been a factor. And then, really, my season started in August. And when I look back, all my big wins that I had, whether it was the World Nine Ball Championship in 2003, the IPT uh, in 2006, uh, as well as some other big tournaments, it always followed after a big straight pool win. You know, straight pool is a game where I always feel confident. I love the game. You know, I know um, that if I play my best, I'm hard to beat. And um, it started with the Accustats uh, Invitational in New Jersey, which I came uh, on top, and then it followed with another big straight pool tournament uh, in New York, the, the World Straight Pool uh, Tournament. And then a week and a half later, I went to Qatar. And I guess I carry so much confidence from those straight pool tournaments um, that I, you know, it gave me this something special there. Plus the fitness that I had, it, it all came together. You know, I think I found the balance that year between myself, my tournaments, my uh, my activities outside of pool. I think it was I was generally very very balanced. Yeah, I, I find it interesting that you 
take it back to the the fitness thing. I mean, other than other than Earl Strickland, the American players just don't seem to be as committed to considering themselves an athlete as the European players do. Do you do you really think that it gives the European players that much of an edge? Well, if you look at the game, let's be uh, honest. You don't need big muscles. Uh, you don't even need uh, to be able to run uh, three rounds, you know, in a stadium in a good time to play good pool. But the level of game, I think, has increased so much over the years, where the the, the top, the cream, they are all so close to each other that they can beat each other any given time. Uh, there has always been discussions who is the best player, um, and uh, I don't think you can really say there's one best player. There are like 20, 30, 40 players that can always win. So you have to look for like the, the very small percentages that gives you an edge. And I think uh, physical fitness uh, can you know be a part of it. Uh, it gives you confidence. You know, you feel good. Uh, you have the stamina to overcome long games. I think it can only be beneficial. And people will say, "Well, look at like back in the day, Steve Miserec. He wasn't the uh, you know the fittest athlete, and he was dominating." And and then I say, "Yeah, but what if he would have been in really really good shape? He would have been maybe even dominated more." And if you look at the trend of the players that are winning, you know, even you know Shane and Niels. They're all really fit guys. So I think the trend for the future is uh, you need to be in shape if you want to win tournaments. That's uh, my opinion. It's not really... Uh, it, the game itself doesn't require muscles, but if, you, if you're fit, and also I'm sure it will affect your, uh, your, your mental uh, state that you just feel better and refreshed and maybe you can... If there's a... A tough situation that you can handle it better because how the blood circulation works better and gives you more oxygen to the brain. Um, I think it can it can give you the edge to win a tournament. You can't argue with success, and you know not just yourself, but the European players as a whole seem to have been taking their game to another level in the last five or six years. So. You know, you may be onto something. I mean, ask Earl. He he believes wholeheartedly in it. But like I say, he's probably the only American that that believes it to that extent. Even though you did have an outstanding year, surprisingly, you didn't have a chance to represent your country at World Cup of Pool. Uh, you didn't have a chance to represent at at Moscone Cup. There was no challenge of champions. Um, that had to hurt a little bit. I mean, of course, uh, if you are successful, you want uh, recognition. And um, I wish I would have had given a chance to compete in all those events. Even I think there was no uh, challenge of champions for the first time. Um, and the Moscone Cup and the World Cup of Pool, even though I you know, won the event with Ralph a couple years ago and finished second once. It's a really fun uh, event to play and, of course, a good chance to... Um, make income. Uh, so that was a, a bummer. And I understand that um, Matchroom picked the players. I mean, I had my, my really st good streak in August and they already picked the players before that. 
so that had a, an effect. If I would have won those tournaments in the beginning of the year, I'm sure I would have been in a World Cup of Pool and maybe the Masters. Um, but nevertheless, you know, I can't. Uh, I can change it. I just hope that I can continue my my good play this year and then hopefully have a chance. That's all I can do. Um, I don't know all the you know the the politics behind it, and I'm I'm a player. You know, I love to play, and I you know you know I'm committed. I think after Ralph, uh, I'm the the player that travels the world the most to play in tournaments. I think that's just part of our job, and it can be stressful at times. I mean, I spent I I broke it down last year because I have my statistics, and I spent about 30 days on an airplane. Wow. Uh, out of the year. So if I just take, let's say I fly to Japan and that's a 14-hour flight and I add all those hours up, it comes down to a month just sitting in an airplane. I think only Ralph um, is a player that spends even more time in the air. So you see my commitment, you know, and just you know, love to make new friends and play all over the world. I think it's part of being a champion. I want to I wanna win tournaments all over. And I understand that maybe, you know, some of the Americans, they are, they like to stay home or they like to stay in the States. They don't like to travel. And, and that maybe answers some of the questions before why Europeans have more success. Uh, because, you know, they, they like to travel or that's part of the business. And, um, and then, you know, you compete against everybody in the world. It's different. It's always, I think, if you want to improve your game, you have to step out of your comfort zone. And uh, someone that lives in the States, it's a big step to travel to the Middle East or you travel to China and play in a tournament because all of a sudden, you know, first you have to deal with the jet lag, you have to eat strange food, uh, people are different, the table conditions are different, everything's different, and you have to get used to that. And um, it can be frightening at times. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't for me. But uh, I had uh, a pretty good success globally. But because I'm ready, because I, 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 I noticed that and think it's part of my job to travel. It certainly worked out for you last year. And, and last year not being the only year that you've, you've really excelled in your game. Um, we're going to take a short break real quick, and then when we come back, I want to talk to you about bonus ball. Um, everybody hold on. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. I'm joined this week by Torsten Homan. Torsten is uh, one of the three members of the Minnesota Outlaws, uh, the number two seed that won the WPBL Bonus Ball Championship last week in Vegas. Um, Torsten, when I watch Bonus Ball, it certainly has aspects of, of the different games, and it has a little bit of straight pool in it, which 
makes sense that you and, and Ralph would both excel so much in it, but with the, the limited pockets that you can shoot to, I see a big part of one pocket, and I don't... Mm -hmm. I don't normally don't think of you or Ralph as one pocket players. Am I just am I making too much out of that th that three pocket thing or or what is it that you think made you and Ralph and Jesse so strong this year? Um well I can only guess um and I have some ideas. Uh first of all um it's different when you play in a team. And especially Ralph and me, we have, uh, you know, history. We grew up, we grew up playing four teams in Germany. That's what pool play is all about, is playing in a team and for a team. And we played uh, on a national team together for so many years and we, we won the World Cup of pool. So we know what it takes on and off the table to come together as a team. Um, and then, Jesse is just such a cool, nice guy that he became part of us very quickly. And it was just fun playing with them and hanging out with them. So that could have been a factor that we just harmonized as a team. Um, then, as I said in my interviews after the matches, yes, I need still a lot of experience when it comes to the tactical part, when it comes down to one ball, and one is trying to knock it in front of his pocket and the other guy is trying to get it out over to his side. And um, I think that that's where Jesse has the biggest experience. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that in the final, that was part of our strategy, that I knew that my strength is I need a, I need a break, I need to have an open table, then I can run run balls. So we as the home team had the advantage of putting our players against, you know, the Atlanta Scorpions. So it was sure that I had to play on one and three to get the break. And um, I put Jesse last against Shannon because I knew Shannon is really good at the strategy. And it all worked out for us um, that I ran, I think, up to 20-something. And then Johnny had a kick against me, and I got a shot, and I ran out. I, I scored 38 points. And then Jesse had the last game against Shannon and it turned into a safety or strategy battle that he came on top. And then he came with three uh, amazing shots to close it out. Um, I think our our whole approach to the game is professional for us as business. You know, we don't play to just have fun. Um, that's part of it. But we want to do well. We want to do our best. We want to win. And I don't know that maybe... Some of the teams, they just came in and they thought we can have a good time in Vegas and and play bonus ball. Or some teams, they didn't even practice the game and then they made silly mistakes. You know, I've noticed that. You can clearly see by watching the others that, oh, they're they not really prepared. They, they haven't practiced the game and you need to spend some time to really understand the rules and uh, how to play the game correctly. And uh, that was missing maybe in some teams. And for us, it was business. We uh, we always put 100% in. And uh, we made very, very few mistakes, like shooting the wrong ball in the wrong pocket um, or managing the time. We knew that we didn't have to come with the greatest shot. Sometimes we just had 
to slow down the game uh, to win. And um, we were the number two seed after the regular season, but in fact, we're the only team that only had two losses. New York had three losses. They just had scored more points. But for us, it was more important to win the game than to score big points. So I don't know if there's an answer you have to with. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the game the game certainly has its fair share of detractors. Um, you know, it, it's it's been controversial since day one um, at a number of different aspects of it. Uh, what What's your opinion on the game? Uh, you know, I must be honest, I'm still very... I'm, I have mixed emotions. Uh, when I first saw the game, I thought, oh, that looks silly. And then we started playing and understanding the the rules. And, you know, the rules all make sense for what the game is about. And I actually enjoyed playing it. So I think that could be a factor for bonus ball, is that it's it's really a lot of fun playing especially in the arena in Las Vegas, on a team, you know, with the lights, with the cameras. Um, it's a really fun game to play. So if they, you know, plan on starting leagues, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm sure that the people out there, even the amateurs, would enjoy playing the game. Um, to attract new people to a pool, it is very complicated, you know, and... Uh, even the players were still making silly mistakes in the playoffs. So how can a guy that just walks in, never watched pool before, understand the game? It would take a long time. He really needs the commentators. And I'm just a player. I'm not a marketing guy or analyst that can say, you know, that's important or that's not important. Um, It would be interesting to maybe do some surveys and see how people like the game. Um, The game itself, I noticed that there's a lot of repetition because the balls have spots on the table where they are placed. You see a lot of situations come over and over again. You know, you shoot the shoot the purple into your corner, and then the cue ball two rails to the orange, and that one in the corner, and then the eight in the side. Uh, even after the break, the players figuring out the break where they kind of medium speed, join the cube onto the rail, and then it starts with the purple in the corner, orange in the side, black in the corner. So you have the same situation over and over again. And even when it comes to the tactics, you know, it's usually one ball left at the table. And as I said, the guy knocks it in front of his pocket, the other guy knocks it over. So you have like three, four situations that always come up. So I'm, I'm missing the variety. Also, I'm missing the climax. Uh, like a nine ball, the last ball wins. So it can really, uh, it can get really tense uh, and the spectators can feel it and the players can feel it. And we look at the Moscone Cup, you know, when it comes down to the last ball and that last ball wins. And the bonus ball, you don't really have those climaxes. Um, It can have really silly endings where you break the balls, it's an illegal break and then the opponent wins or you break the balls and you miss the first shot and then your opponent wins. And then you see the spectators, they don't really know how to react to it. Um, but I also must say that while I was not playing with my team, and I was just at home, I find myself 
tuning in every night to watch the other guys, the other teams play. So there was, I was really uh, intrigued by uh, by watching. So I have mixed emotions. Um, you know, I, I try to support it. I'm not sure if we have to invent new games to make pool more popular. I don't think uh, the games that we play are wrong. I think it's more um, the people involved, the politics that will prevent us from growing. You know, if we would all work together, whether it's the, the players, the promoters, um, the industry, the media, if we would all work together, it doesn't matter what game we play. You know, it could be eight ball, it could be nine ball. Um, but just inventing a new game, I don't think uh, it makes a difference. But I'm here to support it. And... Um, I just hope they they do it right, and uh, if it has a chance, we'll have to see. You know, it's certainly uh, a lot of fun playing it. Well, you're preaching to the choir on the whole working together thing, but that's that's a time for a whole other conversation. Um, so now that bonus ball is done, uh, at least now that the season is done, um, I assume you're heading back home. What's on your calendar for the next couple of months? I'm still in Las Vegas. Um, my next tournament will be the... As I said, um, usually the first three, four months are very slow as I'm not playing in the very small events. Uh, but I want to compete. So I'm going to Reno. I play the bar table uh, championship. And then uh, from there, I'll head to New York City for the Super Billet Expo. And then there's a little bit of a of a hole in my calendar. I have a month off, so maybe use that time again to do what I did last year and um, focus on myself. And then I think they scheduled the World Championship already for June. Uh, that's when it will start picking up again. So I don't know. I'll, I'll just check the calendars frequently, and if there's a nice tournament, uh, I'm going to play in it. And other than that, I'll just um, you know practice and try to live my life have some fun and be healthy and work out and uh, maybe have some exhibitions here and there. Sounds good. Um, good luck at the Barbox Championship. Uh, real quick before I let you go, do you want to give a shout out to your sponsors for us? Oh, yeah. Thank you, of course. I mean, I'm known, I believe in, I want to build up long-term relationships with my sponsors. Um, I don't want to you know, play a Q1 year and then switch to another company next year. And um, I think I've built something special with uh, Lukasi and Junkase. They've been supporting me since uh, I came to the States. Um, great company, uh, great use. Uh, my Q, you know, you can buy my Q, the Q I play for $300. That's the one I use. Um, so thank you to Lukasi and then uh, Masato, John, you know, of Kamui, um, with their products, it's just simply amazing. I could never play another chalk ever. Um, it just gives me so much confidence. Um, and I know the ethics and the quality they put in their um, their products because I've been to the company in Hiroshima and I see how hard they work and how they try to improve the products for the players. And, of course, Simonis, um Best class, hands down. For me, it just defines how balls should roll on the table. 
you know, if you play on another clause, you can immediately feel that the slide is different. Um, you know, you anticipate a certain position and it just doesn't work because Simonis just defines how a table should play. So I'm very proud to, uh, to be supported by such a big company. Um, and then QPod, uh, which have a lot of experience from outside the industry. Um, it, it became a, a, a talisman for me, something that, uh, you know, I hold in my hands. And if you pay attention when I'm not shooting, I always have my QPod in my hand because it's like a lucky charm. And it's just such a gorgeous, beautiful thing. Um, so I want to say thank you to QPod too for supporting me. And I know they have some really cool new products coming out. Um, some of them will really be revealed at the Super Billiard Expo. So thank you to my uh, my guys, and I'm looking forward to you know have a very long relationship with them. Thanks for giving me the opportunity, Mike. Yeah, anytime. And uh, we thank you for taking some time out of your schedule. I know you're a busy man, so good luck down the road, and we hope to see you real soon. Thank you, Mike. Hope so too. You have my number. All right. Thanks, Torsen. Everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Go Play Pool app featured room of the week on American Billiard Radio. Today I'm talking to Jason Buffalo Hunt from Buffalo Silver Q Billiards in Reno, Nevada. How you doing, Jason? Pretty good. How are you, Marianne? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, so tell us about Buffalo Silver Q Billiards now. Well, it was the old Diamond Billiards uh, that's been around for like, I don't know, 28 years or something. I think they started in 93 uh, or something like that. The history, it's been a bunch of um, a bunch of different names, but Diamonds was the most popular, and it was uh, the, pretty much the best pool room in Reno for many years. Mm-hmm. And I was able to get a hold of the pool room and try to continue the legacy that it had while it was under uh, Sherry and her husband, um, who were excellent, excellent pool room owners. Awesome. Great. Sounds, uh, sounds like, you know, it definitely already has players that come in. So. Yeah, there's a, there's a history there. Uh, I'm trying to take the old world pool room and turn it into a new world ultra lounge, but still have, the same type of action and players and and uh, tournaments going on, but try to have you know people that are like in the the younger age group. So you know a lot of people think of you walk into a pool room, there's the old guys sitting around playing one pockets, drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, talking about the old days. Like we still have that, but we we're kind of bringing in 2014 into that world. Every morning when when I come in, we open up the pool room at 11. There's like seven people waiting outside the door. <laughs> I swear to God, yeah. And uh, and I mean we have we have living legends. We have Monk Warren Costanza there every day. I mean, uh, you know, he beat Mike Siegel in one of the biggest tournaments uh, ever. I mean, like he's just literally a living legend, and people come from all over just to see him. Uh-huh. And I feel. I feel pretty uh, privileged just to have him as a, d- a daily fixture in my pool room, and uh, I you bet. know we've got 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm excited. I'm 34 years old, and I've achieved my dream. That's great. I'm glad for you, man. Let's go into detail about, you know, what nights your tournaments and your leagues and stuff are. Well, the leagues haven't come in yet because they're in the middle of a session. Mm -hmm. So I just opened up the pool room, and so people aren't. You know, they're in the middle of a, of a season or a session or whatever, so they're not right. going to be back until next session. But I have tournaments Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I have a Monday nine-ball handicap. Oh, I add $100 to all my tournaments if there's 16 players. If there's less than 16 players, I add $50. Cool. Uh, and I don't even charge table time or green fees. So basically the business doesn't make any money, um, which sounds like a smart business decision, doesn't it, during the tournament? <laughs> You know, I'm just trying to I'm trying to give back to the players, and hopefully, if I can give back to the players three times a week, they'll come back and give back to me the other four days out of the week. Or right. you know, they'll you know you 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 kind of want to hope that people recognize the things that you're trying to do for them, and then they, in their mind, will say, well, that's somebody that is worth supporting. Right. You know, so if you've got somebody that is giving money out of their pockets and is running good tournaments and is, is catering to the players and is, you know, is doing things, holding raffles, bringing in tours, bringing in professional players, creating this wonderful atmosphere that every pool player would, would ideally love to have, you would think that that giving to them is going to reflect and they're going to come back and support and, you know, the, you know, I mean, just all the little, all the things, like I just hope, Human, the good human nature in people comes out, and they are going to support the way I'm supporting them, and and that's really all I can hope for. If it works, it works. If not, well, I guess I'll go back to cooking or something. <laughs> I hope it works for you too. Now that's what it's all about. You know, I mean, if you take care of your players, the players should take care of you. So hopefully, uh, hopefully everybody sees what you're doing for them and, yeah, and comes yeah. out and supports you for sure. Right on. So. Um, do you guys have like food and drinks down there? No food, no food. No we food. have uh, right. no, we have we do have uh, top shelf drinks, and we have I mean we have little snacks. You know what I'm saying? We have popcorn. Yeah. We have like candy bars and peanuts, and and I give uh, you know I put out free pretzels for everybody, and I put out uh, mm-hmm. and I put out uh, pistachios. You know pistachios aren't cheap, and they're they're no, good, no, man. There's always music on, even if people aren't playing the jukebox. How many times have you been to a pool and it's dead silent, and they're like, where's the music? Like, well, why don't you go put some money in a jukebox? <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so, I mean, you know, that doesn't happen in my pool. We got In the morning, we got good jazz and blues. Uh, in the afternoon, um, you know, because we have the older crowd in the morning, and then we start playing, you know, good classic rock and roll and classic hip-hop pre-2000. At night, it tends to be a little bit more hard uh, rock and roll and heavier, and then you know the heavier hip hop. But I mean, it all—it's all catered to my customers. So, and you also have one thing that I try to keep in my mind is even if I'm wrong, I try to think that everybody likes to have things five star. So, you know, I think that people just like to be in an elevated environment. And so that's what I try to create is an elevated environment and whatever many different manners that I try to do it in, that's that's my main mentality for my pool room. Awesome. Like offer any services, like key repair or anything like that right now? 
We do. We have a uh, we have two custom cue makers here, and I promote them, uh, their cues, and uh, and their services. So yeah, we have a uh, Ted Kidwell and uh, Jeff Purvis uh, who do custom cues and any work that you need on your on your cues, rewraps, reconditions, tips, fills, and uh, they're they're actually unbelievably priced. Um, I know to put a an ivory fail on uh with install with installation uh the guy charges forty bucks. Which oh, is wow, like Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean that's a stone cold steal. You know, these people are way undercharging. Way undercharging. Yeah. But we, we have a really cool little uh you know, if you come here and you got nine hundred dollars you get a twenty five hundred dollar queue that hits like a southwest. So, yeah, we have all that, and, uh, I mean, I also do tips by hand. If you come in and you want to buy a tip and have it put on right there, I do it by hand. You know, uh, for La Pro, it's like $15 with installed, and then for the layered tips, it's whatever the tip costs plus 10 that I only charge 10 bucks for me to put it on, so. Nice. That's cool. Jason, um, for sure, it definitely sounds like you're, you know, taking care of your players up there, and, and uh, I wish you the best of luck, and definitely make sure that uh, you get signed up with us. That way we can uh, let everybody know about the room being open and uh, get you more customers, more players. And for those of you that uh, haven't downloaded the app, make sure you check it out. It's free to download on Android and iOS. Go play pool. I have it downloaded it's on my on my phone. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. We appreciate it. Um, and make sure you check out the Go Play Pool app for everyone. You'll get to see a limited profile of Buffalo Silver Q Billiards in Reno, and you'll get have all the contact information to get in touch with them up there. And, uh, yeah, Go Play Pool at Buffalo Silver Q Billiards in Reno. Right on. This next couple months is going to be big. You know, we got a, I've got a couple um, – Professional females coming to stay with me and play in the uh, the Shooters Tour and then the Grand Sierra and the uh, and also the Women's uh, Professional Birds Tour. I think it's June. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of things coming up out of my pool room. So if you guys are on the West Coast and uh, there's action every single day, there's action and there's tournaments four times a week and big tours and big things. So come on by to Buffalo Silver Q Billiard Ultra Lounge. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time out of your day to talk to us and let us all know about the room. And And thank you for joining us again on American Billiard Radio for another edition of the Go Play Pool app featured group of the week. And we hope you'll join us next time. Welcome back to American Billiard Radio. This is Mark Cantrell with the Legends and Champions Report. I'm joined by a special guest. Many of you in the Pool and Billiards world have definitely seen her around, and that is Miss Angel Levine. And you usually see her around with a camera or a video camera, and uh, she seems very nice and cute and sweet, but she's a little feisty in my opinion. And in the afraid of speaking, uh, speaking her mind. How you doing, Miss Angel? Hi. How are you, Mark? Good, thank you. And uh, I'm pretty much on the money there, aren't I? You, you, you look very, 
you look harmless, but you're you you got not afraid to speak in your mind. Well, surely not. I'm from Chicago, and uh, I've grown up with legends of the sport, and uh, you can't run with that crowd unless you speak your mind, obviously. So, uh, <laughs> no problems there. As I'd say, I'd probably say, especially being a woman. Uh, yeah, this is a predominantly male sport, and for those of you who don't know, um, I've been filming a documentary on professional pool and billiards, or just pool and billiards in general, for the past seven years, going on eight in March. Has it been and, so long you've been doing this? Well, uh, surprisingly, yes. I, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. I was, um, I picked up the camera to film the beauty of, uh the legends passing down to the young guns their information for free. Now, notably, most uh, people who play pool don't give their information for free, and it's very rare uh, to see them mentoring uh, and giving them away their knowledge. But it was so beautiful to me that for me not to film it would, would have been a sin. So uh, I grabbed the camera to do that, but at the same time, the collapse of the IPT, Kevin Trudeau, the late-night author of the book um, Natural Cures and, and Debt Cures They Don't Want You to Know About, had funded uh, a big international pool tour uh, along with Mike Siegel, and they modeled it after uh, professional golf. And it was uh, the biggest prize fund ever offered for a pool tournament. And that's when I picked up the camera during uh, the tail end of this particular uh venture and pool so that's where that's where your movie starts uh, is, exactly. it a, is it, is it, is it is it a documentary that goes from that point and kind of walks you through history as you see people who are playing in the ipg and then moving on maybe to winning world championships u.s open titles and things like that absolutely um i i start out with the 2007 uh u.s open win of shane van boning um, United States uh, champion who happens to be um, born deaf and with uh, the use of lip reading and hearing aids has, and of course uh, outstanding skill has been able to propel himself to the uh, top of the ranks in America. I view that's the 2009 that was before Mika Eminem won his back-to-back titles. Yes it was well uh, um, I had an issue with the, the promoter of the U.S. Open, and um, I no longer wanted to uh, – I boycotted it, frankly. I, I didn't feel um, he was doing things in an upstanding way. And uh, little to my knowledge, that become uh, quite a pivotal issue in the pool world. Uh, and, and it was a pivotal issue uh, back, uh, you know, at the turn of the century when pool was quite – more newsworthy than it has been, but um, I, I uh, chose to uh, go to other events after having um, had my fill of that. Right, and you were, wait, you travel all over the world do, doing this, right? Well, uh, like I said, I didn't know what I didn't know, and in order to tell a comprehensive story about pool, Every, it was like peeling an onion. Every time I, I peeled a layer back, I cried and cried and had to find out more and more. Um, and it just left me with more questions. So it really sent me on a bike to chase to, to get answers to things and, and also reveal things that I think wouldn't uh, normally have been seen in one place, like a documentary. Right. 
And uh, you've been, you say, seven years, it's been a working project in uh, progress. How much longer do you think before you are finished, or will it ever get finished? Will it be (laughs) one of those things that just, well, I can't do it now, I can't end it this way, I've got to wait till this happens? Actually, you know, um, the the story unfolded itself, and it it really concludes at this year's Moscone Cup during the Hall of Fame dinner um, uh, and the inductions of uh, Matchroom Sports' Barry Hearn, fellow countryman Barry Hearn, and Jeanette Lee. Uh, from New York, who now hails from Indiana, wife of professional pool player George Friedlove. Right. And so you decided to cut it right there. So are you in the editing process at this point? I am. I'm in editing and post-production now and uh, recently just had a a booster campaign, a T-shirt campaign, uh, to um, help uh, complete the editing and post-production of Raising the Hustler, which is the title uh, of the film. Right. Is there uh, is there anybody who's really the star of the show, or is it following multiple storylines? There are multiple storylines. Obviously, I touch a lot of people. Um, I go to a lot of places with a lot of questions. So um, each individual, there's, of course, interviews, and then there's instances where I'm, of course, involved because I play pool. And... Uh, I find myself going to different places for different reasons. Um, and, of course, when, you're, uh, when you know the world's greatest players and can have those intimate moments with them on and off the table and really let loose and see them in their natural state, you, you, I mean, how, you can't help but fall in love with them. I mean, even, even the most uh, rancorous, hard-scrabble, you know, no-good Nick has his place. And there's reasons that, that people become dejected or have had to, you know, undercut somebody else to get ahead. But I don't believe we need to continue to do that. I really believe that there's enough pie for everyone. You know, the only vehicle that's ever propelled uh, the billiard industry has been film. Um, that's the only proof I've ever seen. And in order for us to continue and be successful, if we do plan to continue and be better than we are today is to have a, a strong foundation, and that foundation comes in the form of a film. Right. Well, and, you know, as I've, I've said before, what what stops to, you know, to play devil's advocate? I uh, First of all, I do agree with you. Secondly, The Hustler obviously came out. He's one of the most famous. There's maybe two or three real uh, famous movers that have come out. Obviously, the hustler being one, and I'm not sure that pool needed much help at that particular time. I think it was already a, a, a very popular uh, sport um, and game, whatever people want to call it these days, uh, among a lot of different people. And I then you. you don't think uh, it was popular back then? I think it was waning in popularity. Um, it really needed that 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 novel. Uh, from Walter Tevis to be made into to, to a screenplay, and it needed to be um, fulfilled, and it really hit its potential with the uh, uh, quality of the actors uh, that they used uh, for that story. I mean, Paul Newman, Jackie Gleason, oh, Piper Laurie, these are, Jake LaMotta, those are all very, uh, wow, you know, even Willie Moscone was in, in, in you know, scenes. Just right. watch 
eyeballing. So, of course, he was an extra and a consultant, and he helped them with their strokes, and he helped Paul Newman, uh, just as my mentor Larry Schwartz and Mike Siegel uh, helped Tom Cruise and um, uh, Paul Newman here in Chicago when they filmed The Color of Money in my homeroom of Chris's Billiards. Right. Do you, do you think that... Uh, I'll, tell you what, I'll, I'll tell you what my theory is on The Color of Money and The Hustler, and I'll tell you why I think they're popular. And I know that there's a lot of people in the industry who believe the game needs to be cleaned up and, you know, they're probably right to a certain extent. The game needs to be cleaned up, polished, more professional and, and those kind of things. And, you know, that's, uh, if you want to get in the mainstream, I think that that's maybe something there's, there's a lot of validity to it, but the movies, what's happening with the movies is this. You've got the hustle and the color of money where you've got, hustlers going, trying to figure out how to make the next dollar around the next corner by tricking this guy, going to this smoky pool room and doing this. And I think the average guy, who maybe is not even a pool player, oh, and then that's why they became pool players, is to watch these movers. And they are white-collar, nine-to-five guys and gals who just go to work and they live their existence and they're never in the suburbs and they never hit any kind of the danger line. And I think that these movers put them in a position where they can, for just a short amount of time, maybe a couple hours, can get into that dirty, what they think of a dirty underbelly of a, the hustling and trying to get your money out of somebody. I think that's what is the appeal to the average person on the street. Of course. Well, naturally, I, I, we're human. I think we're very multifaceted beings. And uh, I think we're able to envision lots of things when we're told a story that's uh, uh, touching and moves us, and we can put ourselves in the character's shoes. Right. Yeah, I guess that's the same with just about every movie, but I think that's what the, uh, the appeal is. But going back to my devil's advocate point, yeah, the hustler, the color of money. We can say pool hall junkies, but that wasn't as nearly as big as uh, uh, the the other two. No, but, the other two were the two that that really knocked the dominoes over, and those are the two that the billiards industry, uh, you know, rode that wave generated from it. So, uh, but those then they came, but they came, and then they went. Angel, what what do we do differently this time in 2014? with a great movie about pool that's everything that everybody wants to see and learn about, what do we do once the movie and the ether wears off, shall I say, once the ether wears off, what do we do to keep it popular after that point? Or is it going to fade away again? Well, it's, you know, it's never just really been highlighted is all I think. Um, it's everywhere. It's pervasive anywhere. I can find it at almost any bar, university, basement. I mean, the, you know, people have tables in their homes. People go out to have a drink. There's a bar and a you know, table in the bar. Um, 
Uh, it's not like it's, the most affluent people have tables in their homes. Anyone who has a home who entertains usually has a crown jewel, and that crown jewel is the you know pool table in the rec room, and that's where they entertain. So uh, it's not that it does, it's not relevant. I mean, it just hasn't uh, had a spotlight. It's there. It's just uh, needs to be focused on. It's all. It's in the backdrop. Now we just need to, something to. to uh, we need a, a light shine, uh, that shines bright enough uh, on us to, to get us noticed again, period. But that's not hard for pool because it touches everyone, from royalty to joke you public uh, in the bar. I mean, it touches everyone. Every member of royalty has picked up a cue, whether it's to play billiards or snooker, uh, everyone. I've seen pictures of, you know, uh, Queen Victoria in a fur with a snooker cue in hand. That's that's outrageous, but here it is. Boom. In my face. Yeah. It's, um, it, yeah and, and you're right. It, it, every, well, just about every bar has a pool table. Why, why do you, let me ask you this. Why do, why do you think that we don't get more attention from people like Budweiser and uh, the alcoholic drinks. Why do, you, why do you think we don't get as much attention from them? We don't have a body, a governing body, that's pushing in one direction uh, to accomplish, let's say, an advertising goal. So let's say um, the current body in place in America is the Billiard Congress of America, which used to be uh, headquartered here in Chicago as is Brunswick Billiards, also has headquarters outside of Chicago with their billiard division being in Wisconsin. Um, Tweeten Fiber, a 100-year-old chalk maker that makes Triangle, Elk Master, Master Blue Diamond, uh, and on and on and on. Um, billiards Digest. Uh, many, 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 home to uh, Pool and Billiard uh, Magazine. I mean, we're home to many, many things. We have a rich and illustrious billiard uh, uh, history. But the money hasn't changed in 100 years. They were playing for $10,000 tournaments at the turn of the century, and they're still playing for no $10,500 tournaments. And actually, Larry Schwartz, my mentor, who um, uh, writes a column, he writes the eight-ball column for Billiards Digest and teaches pool at Northwestern University in Evanston, he teaches a billiards course, a course on billiards, and they have a wonderful rec room, a uh, uh, student union. Uh, it's quite nice. Um, and he teaches 14 to a class, usually, uh, a, a semester. Is that, that's, uh, no, no. Top 10 okay. I mean, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just got mixed up. I got mixed up with states for a second. Uh, I, uh, we, we did a, a gig, um, in Mich uh, Michigan State, and for some reason I was putting you and Michigan next to each other. Well, you are next to each other, but um, across the water, right? Yeah, across the water. Sorry. I will call you for your geography. <laughs> I can find my way from England to America, okay? That's all I got. Uh, we're okay with that. <laughs> Is that the England uh, for the Moscone Cup? You've been to England, you say? Yes, I have for the Moscone Cup, the two of them. What do you, I'm going to ask you this. It's an off-the-wall question, but uh, I talked a little bit with Michaela about food. What, what's the, what do you like most about English food while you were over there? Uh, I don't know. I didn't really have much English food. 
<laughs> Man alive, I tell you. I, I, I had, I had um, you know, the food at the hotel. I went out for Italian at night. Uh, I had Greek in the morning, like Greek diner breakfast, you know, it was lovely. <laughs> I spoke to Nick Varner uh, about... Um, you know, talking about English food, and he said, man, you can keep your food over there. We went out for dinner, and it was Indian food. That stuff is terrible. <laughs> oh, that, he doesn't know what's good. That's that's amazing food. It's also, you know, one, one of the Queen's colonies, you know, its own... But is there is there any is there anything else you think we should know about the Razor the Hustler movie as far as what's your projected time for the release at this point and are you trying to get it on TV and things like that? No, no, no. We're uh, we're aiming for a completion of August this year so that we can submit to Sundance Film Festival um, uh, in September because of, well two reasons for Sundance number one. Uh, Sundance has prestige unlike uh, any other film festival, and acceptance to Sundance will get the film acceptance uh, and an invitation to Cannes Film Festival in France. So right. we want to go to Cannes, but even more importantly, Robert Redford owns Sundance Film Festival, and Robert Redford and Paul Newman were best friends, and I can't imagine him not wanting to honor Paul Newman in a film that that you know. Harold's pool and, 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 and his mark that he made on it. That's a, well, that's a, that's a good point and a, a, and a great angle. And hopefully that, you know, that it will be accepted and it will get rare reviews. Really hope so. I really hope so for you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, uh, I, I've been trying to say this for a very long time. When the tide comes in, it doesn't raise just one boat in the harbor. It raises the entire fleet. So my success is our success. And from that, I, I really hope everyone understands that uh, this isn't just about me. This is about us. Uh, and, and I want to do right by us. And, again, my success is our success. And I and I and I agree with that. And you know, I tell you, it's something I've said before that always kind of scares me a little bit. And I've seen it happen. Um, let's just say, raising the hustler is a huge hit, and it's you know, it wins the Sundance Film Festival, the Cannes Film Festival, and makes its way onto the the global, you know, market. I'm, and, and raises all the ships. I'm always yeah. frightened that some giant corporation or somebody with just a ton of money is going to come in and start throwing money at everybody. And the people who were there from the, you know, through the rough times, let's say, all get forgotten about, kind of thrown aside. I, I don't mind if I'm overlooked by those around me. They know in their hearts, how strong an endeavor this has been for me. Uh, seven years and I haven't made a penny. I've spent and spent and spent, but I've done this for love, for love of them, for love of the sport. Uh, I, I want to see it really progress. And you know what? If I manage to make it to the mainstream uh, and have some uh, income come from this, I'll throw it all right back. You have my word on it uh, wholeheartedly. This is a boon, and, and, and my word, uh, I will give back entirely. 
I'll make a whole brand of rapid, and I'll give us all something to do. I promise. Okay. Well, I wasn't wasn't just talking about you. I wasn't necessarily talking about me either. But Mm. there's, you know, just people who've been around trying to make things happen. Um, You can go with Justin from the action report, maybe, you know, who, you know, I guess they're not going to be doing anymore. I was there from the beginning. I was there from the beginning. In 2007, I had him sitting there with no camera. I was there. I saw him. He was just sitting there. He was watching uh, Efren and Grady play. Uh, Grady Matthews and Efren Reyes. Uh, both amazing champions, and uh, God rest his soul, Grady Matthews uh, is no longer with us. But, yes, I, I have footage of that. And then the next uh, subsequent year, uh, the rise of Tar and uh, their Shane Van Boning match against Alex Tagalion. And that was amazing. Right. Well, I hope everything, you know, I, I, I really do. I, I, won't, I won't be doing this radio show if I thought it was... I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm with everybody else who's involved in American Bullies Radio. You know, we, we don't get paid to do this, uh, but we're trying to just give a different insight to people like yourself, um, give you a platform, and and give other people, get people uh, to know the people in the, within the industry and the players as well. And and so, you know, we won't be all be doing it if we didn't want everything to work out and succeed. And I, I think what you're doing is a fabulous thing, and I, I wish, wish you nothing but the best of luck. Thank you so much, Mark. You're welcome. We're raising the hustler. Is, is there anything uh, anything else you want to talk about? Is there anything you want to mention while I've got you? Oh, wow. Well, I think we've covered quite quite a gamut. Um, I, I want people to still uh, persevere, uh, contribute as much as they can. Uh, everybody, you know, goes, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And it's an actual stand of the hustler, let's say. You know, unless you're scratching my back, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Well... There's something to be said for doing something for the sake of just doing. Uh, there's so much more to be gained from it. And uh, it just as the, the prime reason for me picking up the camera was to film this beauty of mentorship between father and son, uh, passing down the torch of knowledge. Uh, I think that everybody has something to contribute. So uh, please persevere. Don't be discouraged. Don't be dejected. There's a lot going on. And... Uh, your, your voice, the voice of one, can really make a difference. It always has. Right. There's always I, one person to talk about. Absolutely agree with you. And you know what? We've made the, the pool world in, in general has made it this far. I don't, I don't think it's actually ever going to go away. Uh, I think the only thing you can do at this point is get some organization together and grow. That's the point. That's the point, to grow, but grow together. I mean, we, we need unity. Obviously, that's really important so that we're all on the same page, moving in the same direction. So uh, um, we're working towards it, and uh, hopefully this shed, the film uh, Raising the Hustler sheds some light on all of these things uh, that we've talked about and far many more. Uh, I hope that uh, everybody's very engaged by the story, and... Uh, I look forward to completing it and sharing it with you all. <laughs> look forward to seeing it. Angel, thank you so much for your time, and uh, hopefully I'll get to talk to you again maybe uh, once you get completed and you're heading off to uh, the Sundance Film Festival, and maybe we can have another talk with you about how things went. Excellent. I'll be shouting it from the rooftop before then. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, Angel, thank you very much, and you have a wonderful day, and I'll speak to you soon. Be well, Mark. Bye-bye. And that was Angel Levine on American Billiards Radio, the Legends and Champions Report. Um, insightful. Can't wait to uh, to see the movie. To be honest with you, the documentary, lots of interesting things, it sounds like. Uh, it, it sounds like the kind of thing that we're all probably going to sit around and uh, be looking at and talking about for a few years, uh, at least after it's out and made, and remembering some of the people who are in it. So, till next week, thank you all very much for listening, and we will see you next time.